Let's open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, Paul's letter to the Galatians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words of our text are printed in your bulletin. You can turn there as well. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 15. For those of you who are visiting with us, just to let you know, we are currently in the midst of a series on Galatians, and uh, we have been making our way through Paul's letter, which is a fascinating letter that he wrote to a group of churches that he had planted uh, years earlier in what is now known as Turkey. And uh, he's writing this letter because he has heard that since his planting of this church, a group of people from Jerusalem had come up to, to these churches in Galatia and had said that Paul had only given them part of the story. He had given them a very important part of the story, which is this, Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the long Uh, the longed-for Messiah of the Old Testament. He has come to live for us and die for, excuse me, die for us, pay the penalty for our sin, and uh, resurrected, was resurrected by God and ascended to His Father right, right hand. That is all true, and that you are saved by faith in Him. But what Paul forgot to tell you, Galatian churches, was this. If you want to really experience and be part of the covenant community of God, the saved people of God you need to actually adopt the Old Testament laws that pointed to Jesus Christ, the purity laws, the law of circumcision, etc. And by observing those laws, you are also uh, fulfilling your calling as a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's how you please God. Paul gets wind of this, he freaks right out, and he writes this letter saying, wrong, 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 wrong. I told you, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. There is nothing you have to do ever, ever to add to your faith to make you pleasing to God. And anybody who tells you different, well, in chapter 1, he says, let them be anathema, let them be cursed, let them be cut off, let them be condemned, okay? Now, he's been unpacking this argument in various ways for the last four chapters as we've been looking through Galatians, and we're back in Galatians chapter 5 now, where Paul is continuing to explain how if the Galatians decide to follow the Judaizers' teaching, that is, adopt this idea that they got to follow the Old Testament laws and stuff like that, they're going to lose their freedom, and they're going to fall back into slavery, okay? So that's what he's going to say to them in Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15. So let's read that together, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit as well. Beginning at verse 1 of Galatians chapter 5, it says this, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. 
Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. This is God's word. Okay, so like I said, we are back in Galatians. In uh, verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul says this. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. This chapter, chapter 5, is all about freedom. Ah, freedom. Paul says, you are free. Don't go back to slavery. What is he talking about? What's what's the, the burning issue that Paul is dealing with right now? He says in Galatians that there is a danger of them losing their freedom if they listen to these Judaizers. And on the surface, I know that that doesn't look like much. Okay, you know, if I listen to these guys and I start obeying a law, then I will be a slave, okay? And if I don't do that, I'll be free. Okay, on the surface, that does not look like much. But actually, Paul gives an incredible insight in this, in this uh, statement that is, in fact, actually hard to believe if you understand really what he's talking about. So what we're going to try to do is try to understand what it is he's really talking about. If you want a sermon outline, uh, if take notes or follow along, you can find that on the back of your bulletin to help uh, guide our discussion. But we're going to look here, at, first of all, at how Paul tells these Galatians, don't lose your freedom. First of all, who is Paul writing to? In verse 3, it says this, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obligated to obey the whole law. So Paul is talking to people who are not circumcised. Um, You can only get circumcised once. And so he's saying, if you let yourself be circumcised, you've got to obey the whole law. So he's obviously talking to people who have not yet been circumcised, which means that Paul is talking to pagan converts to Christianity. Not Jewish converts to Christianity, pagan converts to Christianity. And he says that you are free from your pagan lifestyle, from the paganism from which you come. Okay, well, what what did it mean to be a pagan back then? Well, first of all, uh, paganism, it was not not a nice life to live by a pagan way of living, okay? First of all, pagans, uh, uh, there was a lot of adultery and a lot of promiscuity in paganism, which... Uh, The men appreciated, but the women did not appreciate because the women were not allowed to uh, be promiscuous. Only the men were allowed to be promiscuous. And so actually a lot of women were attracted to Christianity from the pagan lifestyle because uh, of the Christian emphasis on fidelity in marriage and sexual purity. And so there was a a lot of promiscuity. There was a lot of adultery. There's more to it than that, though. For every hundred men 
there were 140 women. And so men were more valued, sorry, I got that backwards. For every 140 men, there were 100, sorry, for every 100 men, blah. I was on vacation last week, so I'm not in, I'm still, you know how you don't exercise for a while and then you try again for the first time, you're like, whoa, I'm out of shape. 40 men, there were 100 women. So there are many more men than there were women. And the reason for that was because men, males, were more valuable than women. And so uh, women, babies even, were killed uh, if they were considered less valuable than the men in their household. So for example, infanticide, which was, which was pretty common, was expressed even in letters and in correspondence. There's a letter from a Roman soldier uh, who was out at the front, sent a letter back to his pregnant wife, and he says, you know, how are the crops doing? How are the kids doing? How's the business doing? Oh, remember, you're pregnant. If the baby comes before I get back, and it's a girl, remember, get rid of it. So these things were common. Not only that, but if you were sick in, in, pagan world, in the pagan world, if you were very, very sick, and uh, people didn't know how, how to treat you or whatever, you were just left to die. You weren't treated. You weren't cared for. It was a brutal life. And on top of that, pagans were idolaters. There was no such thing as an atheist in that day and age. Everybody was a, a theist of some sort, but pagans were what's called polytheists, meaning they believed in all kinds of gods. So for example, if you were a fisherman, you worship the fisher god. Okay? If you were in the military, you would worship the god of the military. If you were single and you wanted to be married, you would worship the god of beauty in order to be, uh, in order to be married and be made attractive and find a mate. And so you were always trying to appease these gods in order to get what you needed out of life. So if you wanted to make sure you had a good catch when you out, went out fishing, well, then you went to the temple and you sacrificed to the fisher god so that he would bless your outing so that you would uh, get a good catch. And if you were in the military and before you went off to war, you would have to make a sacrifice. And if you were trying to find a spouse, you would go to the temple, you'd make a sa sacrifice and say, please bring me a husband or please bring me a wife. In other words, as Thomas Hobbes put it, life back then was nasty, brutish, and short. Okay? And the pagan life was like that. And the Apostle Paul says, you were a slave when you were living that kind of lifestyle. You were a slave to your passions so living lustfully and uh, getting into trouble as a result of that, you were a slave to the idols that you were serving because you were constantly trying to remember, have you upset a God? Have you kept a God happy? What's going on in my life? Oh, something bad happened to me? Oh, I better uh, uh, appease that God. So you were a slave to all of that kind of stuff. And so Paul is arguing that when you were a pagan, yeah, you were sort of what we... And then you came to faith in Jesus Christ and now you're free. Wonderful. But look at verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So Paul is saying that if you go from that pagan life, we'll just call it a morally licentious life, and you go from that life to being a, a Christian, trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, but now, from there, you attempt some sort of moral reform and you adopt these Old Testament laws. He says, you will again 
not put on a new yoke, but you will again put on a yoke. In other words, he says you'll trade one form of slavery for another form of slavery. In verse 4, he says, you who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. He says you have been alienated from Christ. In other words, he's saying, if you try to adopt the Old Testament laws and please God by adopting those laws, by thinking that if I eat kosher foods, make sure that I get circumcised, live that way, and don't, don't get defiled by living with pagans and, and spending time with Gentiles, if you think that you're pleasing God by doing all that kind of stuff, he says you're actually, in a different way, behaving like a pagan. Huh? How in the world can that be? What Paul is saying is, is if you live a life of moral license, you're a slave. But if you live a life of moral obligation, you're a slave as well. And Christ will be of no value to you. That's what he says in verse 2. If you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value at all. In other words, you add the necessity of obeying a set of laws to make God happy, to please Him, to get His favor, you add that to the faith that you already possess, you've ruined what Jesus has done for you on the cross. You're living like a pagan. Now, how weird is that? Now, if you don't understand how weird, if you don't understand that that is weird, then you're not I'm not explaining it very well. I was going to say, well, then you're not understanding. It's, it's not your fault. It's my fault. Let me, ex- let me try to illustrate this for you. Uh, I read this in a, in a book. I Babe Ruth Baseball. Signed by, it had a baseball signed by Babe Ruth. And uh, it was very dear to him and important to him. And he kept it in a glass case and kept it on his mantle and all that kind of stuff. And he ran into some financial trouble years and years and years after getting this baseball, so that was signed by Babe Ruth. And he thinks to himself, well, this baseball is of great value. If I sell it, I can pay off some debt, and, you know, I'll be okay. So he goes to the mantle, he takes his baseball down, and he looks at it, and it's been like 30, 40, 50 years, something like that, and he looks, and he sees that the, the ink is really, really faded, and it's kind of hard to see Babe Ruth's signature on there. So he thinks to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll just improve it a little bit, and you know, people will see that it's a nice, fresh uh, signature, and I'll get more money for it. And so he took a pen, and he traced over the signature of Babe Ruth, and then he brought it to a baseball dealer. And the baseball dealer said to him, this thing is worthless. And he said, what do you mean? He says, this is, this is a baseball with the signature of Babe Ruth on it. And he says, yeah, but you wrote over it. And the guy said, no, I didn't. I just traced along it. And he says, yeah, but now it's not Babe Ruth's signature anymore. Now... It's your forgery of Babe Ruth's signature. And your baseball is worthless. That's what Paul is saying. If you try to please God by doing all the right things, even if it's good things, like coming to church on Sunday, and every time I say this, I cringe, and I think, am I going to tell people not to come to church anymore? Because I really want them here. But if it's good things like going to church on Sunday or putting big checks in the offering plate or serving on committees or making sure you teach your kids to read their Bibles every day and teach them how to pray at meals and all those kinds of things, even all those good things, if you think for one instant that you are pleasing God that way, you are no different than a pagan. What? 
Yeah. If, you're, if you don't think this is crazy, I, look, I'm a parent. And as a parent, I know that my, I have kids who are sometimes good and sometimes not so good. They are sometimes helpful and they are sometimes not so helpful. And I know, and my kids know, and I know that my kids know, and my kids know that I know that they know that when they are helpful and when they do good things let it around the house that serve me or they're nice to a brother or sister or something like that, I like them more. Here's the thing. Deep down in our souls, we all play that game. We do it to our friends. We do it to our spouses. We do it to our coworkers. We do it to our kids. When they do things that make us happy, that please us, we like them more. But the gospel is the exact opposite. Well, not the exact opposite, because it's not like God likes us more when we do bad things. But the gospel is different in that God doesn't love us based on any of the good things we do. He loves us when we rest in the work of Jesus done on our behalf. And let me tell you, this is an utterly unique teaching. You will not find this in any other view of life, system of thought, or world religion. Nobody else is going to tell you that you get the reward at the end. And if the reward is transcendence, or the reward is uh, reincarnation, or if the reward is joining with the one world soul, or if the reward is a higher consciousness, I don't care what the reward is. Call the reward whatever you want. But they're always, none of them is going to say, the way to achieve that reward is to rest in the accomplishments of someone else. They're not. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do you have God saying the reward is given to you based upon the accomplishments of someone else. And religious people, even in the church, we've got to, this is why I'm hammering on this, because the human default mode of living is to accomplish it ourselves. We want to earn it. Look, let's say you're having money troubles. And someone gets wind of the fact that you have money troubles. And they show up and they, and they got a check for two grand, five grand, ten grand, I don't care what it is. And they say, look, I know you got some money troubles. I don't need to know how they got them. I don't need to know where they came from. Here, let me help you out. I just want to help you out. Take the check. Do with it whatever you want to do. How do you feel? 95% of you, I know how you feel. Because I don't want to take it. Because I don't want to need it. Because I don't want to receive it. We are terrible at gratitude. Human beings are awful at receiving gifts. The problem with the gospel, if I can put it that way, is that it is humbling. 
Because the only way you can receive God's reward is as a gift. It's the only way. That's why time and time and time and time again, you read through the Gospels over and over and over again, Jesus is showing us in his interactions with people that it's not the rich that are in and the poor that are out, or the poor, not even necessarily the poor that are in and the rich that are out. It's not the smart that are in and the dumb that are out. It's the humble that are in and the proud that are out. And you can be rich or poor and proud. Okay. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Whether you want to live on your own or whether you want to follow God's laws in order to please him, either way, you're a slave. You're a slave to this, to this need to be in control of your own destiny and you're, you're a slave to the, to the requirements of the law, whether it be the law of, uh, of, of you making your own decisions and choosing what's right and wrong for yourself or whether it's the law of God. Paul says, don't lose your freedom. Rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Okay, okay. So there's nothing we can do to, free, uh, to, to please God. That's fine. But then what does count? If Paul says here at the end in verse, 16, verse 6, he says, neither uncircumcision, that is moral license, or circumcision, that is living a life of moral obligation, counts. What does count? What does matter? And that's where we need to continue reading in this, in this chapter. Because you see, if you're asking to yourself, why should I obey at all? What's the incentive to obey? Then you're, you're falling into Paul's trap. That's exactly what he wants you to do. He wants you to ask the question, if all I'm supposed to do is believe and trust in Jesus, why should I bother being good in the first place? If that's the only requirement that's, that there is for, for salvation, what's the incentive for me to do good? Why come to church on a Sunday? Or why put money in an offering plate? Or why uh, teach my... Like when I was in high school. This is like 20 years now, ago now. I don't know if it works this way anymore. But when I was in high school, we knew very well that if you wanted to go to university, grade 11 was a really important year. You had to get your best grades in grade 11, and then the first semester of grade 12. Because those were the grades that you would submit to the universities in your applications. And you would get accepted based upon those. And everybody knew that your last semester in grade 12 was kind of like your cruising semester. Because you already got accepted, they weren't going to get those grades in time to find out whether or not you, you still did well in your classes, and so you could kind of coast. There was no incentive anymore because you already knew you got into the school of your choice. I think it's changed now because we have electronic submission of marks so schools can catch up a little quicker. But back in my day, you know, they had to take a... Uh, went with the Pony Express to get to the university, so it took longer. And so the question is, is what, 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 why bother? And Paul says, that's a great question. That's why in verse 6 he says this, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then in verses 13 to 15, he goes on, My brothers, you are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So if verses 1 to 5 
the summary is don't abuse your freedom. The summary in verses 13 to 15 is, sorry, verses 1 to 5 is don't lose your freedom. The summary in verses 13 to 15 is don't abuse your freedom. What your freedom is meant for is described in verses 13 to 15. And what it's meant for is this, to serve one another. Now, this is where the Bible's worldview completely opposes kind of the world's, the world's worldview. Because the Bible has a very different understanding of freedom than the world in which we live does. If you ask a person, a typical secular North American, what does it mean to be free? Essentially what they'll say is, being free means I can do what I want as long as I don't hurt someone else. Does that sound about right? So for example, it means to be unimpeded, unhindered, no shackles, right? As soon as you put limits on someone, now they don't have freedom. So if you go parachuting and you jump out of the plane before you pull the chute, you're in what's called free fall, right? Nothing impeding you. As soon as you pull your chute, you're no longer in free fall. It means to have some sort of negative freedom, freedom from restraint, freedom from constraints. That's sort of what the world would say freedom is. Individuals can choose whatever it is they want to do. Now, I don't have a lot of time to explain this. I've got to go through it pretty quickly. But let me just say this. It's very naive to believe that. And then, frankly, in practice, it does not work. It's all well and good to say, freedom is for me to do as I like as long as I don't hurt others. But that's very, very difficult to work out in practice because who's to say what hurts others? For example, abortion. Some would say I'm free to make decisions about my own body as long as I don't hurt others. People will argue, but you are hurting others if you have an abortion. Another example, gambling. Probably a couple years ago now, uh, in downtown Hamilton, uh, there was a proposal to put in a casino. And some people were arguing that, hey, if I want to choose to gamble, that should be my right to do that. And other people were saying no, because actually it hurts others to have casinos in a district where there are uh, a lot of poor people who might be um, susceptible to that kind of an addiction. And so there was a disagreement. Marriage. Some people would say polygamy should be fine. It doesn't hurt others. It's, there's no victim in that crime. Other people, or it, it's, there's no victim, so therefore it's not a crime. And others would say, no, wait a minute. It's bad for women and it's bad for children. See, we here in the West, we would say women's rights are very important and therefore we should all, excuse me, allow for women's education and we should uh, allow for women to have the freedom of movement and they should be allowed to drive cars. And there will be other people who say to you from other cultures perhaps, I don't agree with that at all. And there will be women who argue that women should not be educated or should not be allowed to drive cars. Who's right? Who's right? It's very easy for us to say that, that freedom is just my ability to do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt others. But somebody has to define what hurts others, you see? You're stuck. See, the Apostle Paul, when he says in verse 13, do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, Paul is saying there is some kind of standard. He's saying that things like, if you go further down, Verse 21, 
envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. In verse 20, debauchery, idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of They hurt yourself and they hurt others, and therefore they are sin, and you should not indulge them. Paul can only say that because he has a standard. If you don't have a standard outside of yourself to appeal to, then you can't challenge the views of any other person. It's called moral relativism. I was sitting with someone, doing an interview with someone, and I asked them, well, how do you determine what is right and what is wrong? And they said, very frankly, that they were a moral relativist, completely. So they didn't think that there was an objective standard of what is right and what is wrong. And I said, okay, uh, so you decided to live a good life and decided to serve other people with your life and, and uh, you know, benefit society by uh, how you live your life? And they said, yeah, I have. I said, well, what if you were sitting with a person who across from you said, it's all well and good for you to decide that with the 60 or 70 or 80 years you have on this earth that you're going to serve others and try to make the world a better place, but I have a different perspective. I figure if I only have that long to live, I might as well get mine. And right now, the best way for me to get mine is to sell fentanyl on the street. Yeah, it may kill a couple people here and there, but I will get rich, and I will be able to buy the houses and the boats and have the kind of life that I want. I said, what would you say to them? What, would you want to say that they're wrong? And I got to give the man credit. He was, he was a very consistent moral relativist. He said, I would ask him questions. And I said, okay, <laughs> like what? How did you come to conclude that this is the way to live your life? Why, would, why is this the way you would want to choose to live your life? I said, but would you say to them they're wrong? And they said, no. Because they didn't have the right to impose that on another person. And that's what you end up with if you're a consistent moral relative. Now, most of us, won't, most of us can't be consistent moral relativists. I'll just put it to you this way. Very easy. As soon as you become a mom or a dad, you cannot be a moral relativist. Because, you know... If the drug dealer hooked your daughter on the fentanyl, I'm sure you'd have something to say about whether or not this was wrong. But my point is simply this. Freedom to do as you want as long as you don't harm others is a wonderful abstract kind of thing to say, but it doesn't work. Nobody can actually live that way. In contrast, the ancients, and not just the biblical authors, but ancient thinkers, including biblical authors, they said that real freedom is actually not living, not living without any constraints on your life. It's living with constraints that are compatible with your nature. See, human beings are made a certain way. And once you understand what you're made to live for, if you align your life with the purpose for which you've been made... Then you live in freedom. Here's a fish. A fish is in the river. It's swimming around. It's having a wonderful life because it was made to live in water. If you take that fish and you pull it out of the water and you say, I am freeing you from the constraints of water. Here, fish, live and enjoy life on land. What will it do? It will just flop around and eventually die because it was not made to live on the water. Or sorry, on the land. And so you pick the fish up, you put it back in the water, and what happens eventually, as its gills begin to work again and the oxygen gets into the lungs, it, it takes off and it experiences freedom again. A glider is built to travel on the air currents, right? 
and it has all kinds of freedom as long as it's doing that. Take that glider and plunk it on a pond or on the lake. How will it do now? Whoopee, right? It won't do anything. Maybe it'll work as kind of a raft. But it won't have nearly the freedom it has when it's fulfilling its design. What about humans? What are they built for? And that's what Paul explains in verse 6 and verse 14. He says human beings are built for love. The entire law, verse 14, is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Human beings were built for relationship with God and with others and anything that destroys those relationships comes from the sinful nature. And what Paul does is brilliant here. He basically says, look, the only law that remains, you're worried about whether you should follow these Old Testament laws, and there's 613 of them in the Old Testament that you could follow. You, you, you don't need to worry about that. Let me tell you, the only law that remains is the law of love. And it's remarkable if you really think about it because love restrains. People who want to say that I want absolute freedom to do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt other people, they can never actually experience love. Because love, by, by its very nature, restrains. It limits. If you fall in love with someone, you are necessarily limiting yourself. You become accountable to someone, right? Right? You all of a sudden, now you're in a relationship with another person and you cannot do whatever you want. You can say to the person, look, uh, you know, now we're in a relationship and I love you, but I, I want to continue to see other people. And they're going to say, that hurts me. And you can say to them, but it shouldn't hurt you. You can say that all you want, but that doesn't change the fact that it does hurt them. And they will say, if you want me, the relationship must be exclusive. You can't see other people. You are now submitting to a law. You can't escape it. And so Paul, when he says the entire law is fulfilled and is, is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying that the only law that is left is the law is the command to love. And that's why Augustine, in the very cover, you can see it on the cover of, a, of your bulletin, he says, love and do what you will. Whether you hold your peace, through love, hold your peace. Whether you cry out, through love, cry out. Whether you correct, through love, correct. Whether you spare, through love, do you spare. Let the root of love be within. Of this root can nothing spring but what is good. You know what he's saying? Follow the law of love and do whatever you want. That's what Augustine is saying. Follow the law of love and do whatever you want. That's Christian freedom. Christian freedom is following the law of love. Anyone in love knows that. If you've been in love, when do you feel most free? When do you feel most alive? When do you feel most full of joy? When do you feel most human? Isn't it when you've been deeply loved and you can deeply love another? It can be costly though, right? If you're deeply in love, it costs. I mean, it can cost money because now maybe you're paying for dinners or movies or something like that. It costs you time because you've got to spend that time with that other person. It may even cost you uh, some 
things that are dear to you because, you know, you've got maybe a couple of buddies that this new love interest doesn't really appreciate all that much and you have to decide whether you can hold on to both those sets of relationships and you can't. You've got to give one up. It can cost. But in the end, you're happy to do it. Why? Love, right? What motivated Jesus Christ to go to the cross? In Romans chapter 5, it says, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ hung there on that cross, not because those nails were just so strong, and not because when he looked down, he saw that Romans were standing there with spears and they were ready to get him if he tried to get away. Jesus Christ at any given moment could have called a, a, a million angels from his heavenly army to come down and smite all his enemies and take him off the cross. He could have just snapped his fingers or blinked his eyes or not done any of that and just thought it in his head and those nails would have popped out of his hands and popped out of his feet and he could have floated to the ground and he could have smote all his enemies right there in front of him. What hell him on that cross. It was love. Because he wanted to make you and he wanted to make me God's children. He wanted to reconcile us to his Father. He wanted to give us the freedom, the freedom to no longer have to work to get something from God, but to just rest in Jesus' work for us and bask in God's love for us. And be free to love Him and love others. This is why John, in 1 John, he says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We love because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, um, after all that talking, at the end of the day, really what, what Paul teaches us in this passage is there is nothing we can do to make you love us more there's nothing we must do to make you love us at all. All we need is nothing. All we need is faith. Trusting in your son. Help us to do that. Help us to rest in that. Help us to be motivated out of that, to serve you and serve others. Not to get anything from them or you, but to simply... Spread that love that you have given us. I haven't spoken with great clarity this morning. Uh, I pray, Father, that you would uh, pierce through all the clutter and root in all of our hearts the one message that really matters. That we are free, free from guilt, from condemnation, from shame from the penalty of your judgment and from death free from all of that because of what jesus did teach us to simply rest in his work his accomplishments done on our behalf in his name we pray amen